0: This week, we watched the soft-reboot MIB International, and along the way we ask: where was Will Smith in all of this? Why do the men in black love red buttons? And how do human-alien romantic relationships physically work? This is force Sci-Fi. hello everybody and welcome to another bite-sized edition of the force-fed sci-fi podcast i am one of your hosts chris Rupp, and sean unfortunately is off on adventures this time but with me is our friend and producer go ahead introduce yourself hello uh My name is
1: Jeremy. I'm a producer, editor, and lots of other things here on the Force Fed Sci-Fi Podcast. So hello, everybody. I I am pleased to be on here on an episode with you guys today and uh, joining Chris to cover uh, Men in Black International.
0: Yeah, this was teased um, last week when we did our full-length review of Men in Black, and we are excited, I guess is a word we can use to discuss MIB International.
1: Well, you know, I was excited I was excited for when this movie was coming out, but we'll see at the end uh, how we uh, played out our reviews and going forward, how we felt about this film.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) So let's break down the plot of the movie real quick for those who are unfamiliar. And also I do feel obligated to provide a spoiler warning as this is a freshly released film. Maybe this isn't the best episode for you to start your force fed adventure with us. So go ahead and listen back to some of our prior episodes or see MIB International first and then give this episode a whirl. But here's a quick breakdown of MIB International. So after years of searching for a mysterious organization, a young woman named Molly gets recruited to work for the Men in Black and teams up with a legendary agent in a globetrotting adventure to save the universe which is how most of the Men in Black films play out, is the universe is at stake.
1: Yes, we always see the uh, the Earth in danger of some sort. So, But to, to piggyback on that, I, I, I saw on the internet that some people are looking more for of a more detailed plot. So if you're interested, I, I was going to go over that really quick with our audiences. So essentially, after, after Tessa Thompson's character is recruited and she becomes Agent M, which we'll talk about, they kind of battle these these aliens we think were called the dyads, but we're we're not a hundred percent sure. And uh, they were guarding an alien from the royal family of a race called the Jab- Jababians. I think it was.
0: I'm not sure. They were throwing a lot of new alien species out there. Whereas it, in the first ones they were very simplified, like these are the species we have. These are the ones you're gonna follow along with.
1: Yes, yeah. I, I, I totally agree with you. There were a lot of a lot of new ones. But essentially the uh this Jababian named Vungus gives Tessa Thompson uh, a weapon and pretty much everybody is is after this weapon or trying to protect this weapon. So that, that's that's kind of where the plot went with uh with these characters in this film.
0: Yeah, there's the hive plays a big part of this film and i got the sense that they were two factions of the hive like i'm I'm probably wrong or i need to see the movie again to clarify it but um i overall that that just got confusing to me what two factions did you think there were well there were the twins who were um doing their thing and then there was um liam neeson's not so well hidden villain ulterior motives
1: yeah i i do think that was a little confusing um I think what happened is the twins actually were a separate race, the dyads, and they were actually not taken over by the hive. And, and if you go see the film, you'll, you'll learn that the hive can infiltrate a human and, and appear as them, essentially but I don't think that was the case. I think the dyads were a separate race and they wanted the weapon to destroy the Hive as well. I think that's what the movie was getting at, but I'm not 100% sure.
0: Yeah, overall, I would say the film didn't do a great job of communicating exactly what was going on. Yes, completely agree with that. But before we get into all that, let's break down the cast and crew of this film.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So directing... In his first go around with the Men in Black film, but no stranger to action films is F. Gary Gray, who prior to this film directed Friday, which is an underrated comedy, in my opinion. Um, you have The Italian Job, uh, straight out of Compton, he did a couple of years ago, which is another great movie. And then he did The Fate of the Furious, just like John Wick, but with cars. I know how much you love the Fast and Furious films. Chris. Oh, Lord. We saw a trailer of the new Hobbs and Shaw. Awesome. No, I was just like, <laughs> that is a whole lot of no that was like two <laughs> minutes worth of just straight nope for me
1: oh come on you, you don't like those just films that are just action and no plot
0: no i mean i i, I enjoy <laughs> watching the james bond films and jason Bourne and mission impossible because those actually I feel like I am being taken on an entertaining story, not just, hey, look at all the cars, and there's buildings falling on the cars, and then there's a submarine that's fighting the cars. Oh, okay. I I gotcha. I gotcha. Um, Also, this movie was written by Art Markham and Matt Holloway, who uh, actually wrote, I was surprised to learn this, wrote the first Iron Man movie. That That is actually kind of interesting to learn. But they also wrote Punisher Warzone and uh, wrote transformers last night so uh, they're they kind of have a reputation of being franchise killers with their writing yeah yeah those two didn't pan out so well <laughs> and then starring in this movie we have chris hemsworth as agent h tessa thompson is agent m who uh are previously known for their work together in thor ragnarok in great movie oh absolutely i think uh, one of my favorite marvel cinematic universe movies i think oh yeah but if this were an mcu podcast we could probably talk for two hours about thor ragnarok yeah yeah we could but yeah they're now kind of tied together as uh leaders of the marvel cinematic universe now um also starring in Men in Black International, we have Kamal Nanji Nanjiani. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. My apologies if I am not. I have no idea, but good job for trying. <laughs> so he voices Pawnee, and we have Liam Neeson. Uh, Liam Neeson, excuse me, starring as High T. Uh, Rafe Spell, who is a no stranger to being like a a supporting character in big movies like this. He was in the Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom film last year. Uh, we have Rebecca Ferguson starring as Rizza, who impresses people a lot with her as uh, Ilsa Faust in the new Mission Impossible films. And then rounding out the cast is kind of serving as a bridge between the old films and this, this new film is Emma Thompson starring as Agent O.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good segue. We wanted to cover... Some of the callbacks that uh, Men in Black International had with the original series. Um, and and I think that's, of course, one of the first ones we can mention is O from Men in Black Three. Uh, taking over as the leader of the uh, New York location so uh, some of the other ones though that we've noticed uh, you know so we get some familiar alien Frank briefly um, Frank the pug the worm guys we see briefly we don't get a lot of them though that's it's more of kind of a cameo sort of role with yeah. uh, with some of these aliens that we're we're used to and then we see uh a kind of a painting or a picture of agent J and K on the wall of kind of the main office of high T battling the the bug alien from the very first film so you know those are those are just a couple of ones I think uh we we were talking about the the score too there were some parts where you could hear the original score
0: well they did bring Danny Elfman back to score the film and I thought that 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 did wonders for helping to connect the previous films together yeah absolutely but also too there was um if on Tessa Thompson's coffee table there were those tabloid newspapers so you oh, have the, yeah yeah i
1: forgot i forgot about that
0: you have the hot sheets from the original films you also have in that flashback sequence you have molly laying on her bed with um, the stephen hawking book on her chest so it's a callback from the shooting range in the original film oh
1: yeah yeah so when that's the part where uh, will smith shoot little tiffany right? yeah let me ask you
0: why you felt little tiffany deserved to die yeah <laughs>
1: And I think I had wrote on our show notes that was that was one of our favorite parts of the first film when we covered uh, the first film mm-hmm. in our uh, episode last week. Yeah, that, that's a great part in that first film.
0: And then we have another similar Will Smith situation where she Molly's in the lobby of MIB London. She goes and pets this furry alien, and it splits apart into a million pieces. And all the other agents in the lobby are like, "Scoop them up, scoop them up." So yeah,
1: I think at some point someone says, "Don't touch that," and of course that's that's a callback from uh, the first two films obviously Will Smith touching that ball that's bouncing around and then the second one I think where uh, Tommy Lee Jones puts his finger inside some sort of miniaturized world Will Smith yells at
0: him and says don't touch that yeah I feel like anytime this is not limited to just movies anytime somebody says don't touch that they're going to touch it. Oh, yeah. It's absolutely. always followed immediately up by touch every time. <laughs> but I, besides these original callbacks to, I mean, the original films, in a lot of ways, I felt MIB International was very incongruent to the original films.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a hard thing to, to describe, at least from my point of view. Um, I, I think some of the things we mentioned were, and, and we'll, we'll go into these a
0: little bit more
1: Kind of a heavy reliance on CGI and then also too much action almost. Yeah,
0: the original films didn't rely on so many action pieces. There were action in the original films. I am by no means saying there weren't, but they were used to greater effect than what we got in MIB International.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think in International we got about five or six action sequences. You know, we we have one at the very beginning and one at the end, which I think is pretty typical. But then we have three or four in the middle and when you do that, then it's kind of like the movie doesn't slow down, we don't get to know the characters a little bit. They don't get to develop a relationship, you know, and we saw that with J and K and I think that that really helped with the original films. So, yeah, adding all this action, I think it's an incongruency to the to the first three, yeah, definitely.
0: This movie did have some gruesome deaths in- it though and i think i think we mutually agreed on our red shirt of the movie yes yes we
1: did uh the janitor that the twins the dyad aliens i guess they can come to earth and take the shape of somebody but before they can do that they have to pretty much liquefy them or
0: jellify them <laughs> jellify as you put it because they just <laughs> they drop him down in the alley and there's no distinguishing features left of him it's just a, a blob that's now melting into the cobblestones yes absolutely disgusting but uh what was your lens flare in the movie if you had one? I didn't pick one out, but you said you did, though. I have one. So Chris Hemsworth, he's obviously the most well-known, one of the more well-known actors in the Marvel Cinematic Universe right now. He plays Thor. And there's a scene in the movie where he's fighting this big henchman, and he lifts up a hammer. It's not even a Mjolnir-type hammer. It is an itty-bitty, like, Carpenter's hammer. And this heroic music swells up, and he throws it at the alien and attempts to knock him out oh my gosh they're doing a callback to thor and to me personally anytime a movie does something like that it just frustrates me as a viewer <laughs> because they do it all the time with arnold schwarzenegger and any movie he's in that's not a terminator movie they find some way to make a callback to the terminator films
1: see i I sort of disagree with you there because i i did get a kick out of it i think if it continues though into further films then yes it's going to get old essentially mm-hmm. i think you can do it maybe once or twice but after that no then leave it alone because you know there there are some other callbacks that i can think of that i laughed h- hilariously at and and one i was thinking about earlier today was uh airplane 2 i don't know if you ever seen that film
0: i've only seen the first one.
1: Oh, okay so the second one is is a shuttle going to a moon base and William Shatner is in charge of the moon base and there's a periscope that comes down I don't know why it's a periscope essentially he sees the Enterprise flyby. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. Uh, so, uh, so some of the you know there there are some callbacks that I I do appreciate and will laugh at. But I think, like you said, Arnold Schwarzenegger, they're always trying to find something to bring it back to Terminator.
0: If you do that too much, then yeah, I, I completely agree. So I might end up being right if this gets repeated in other movies. Yes,
1: you you may end up being right.
0: Uh-huh. At the moment, I do
1: disagree with you, but at one moment i may agree
0: and we were talking a little bit about this after we saw the movie i think a lot of the incongruency is due to uh, f gary gray's choice as a director because he he does come from a very action heavy background he knows how to direct action
1: that's true that's true because really his most recent film from this was uh, Fate of the Furious. Right? Yes. Yeah. And, and and coming from a franchise like that, that's all action, you know, it's and not a lot of story. You might be used to that and bring that habit over a little bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously we didn't really need that much action.
0: And you brought up this point, too, of I think they're just they're intentionally trying to go in a different direction with this franchise. Because I don't see this as a continuation of the original series. I view this as the start of its own franchise. Yes. So those of you out there can make fun of me. We
1: went to see this last night. And I, to prepare for the podcast, I did go back and see it this morning. And I had more <laughs> of an appreciation for the film this morning because I think last night I went into it expecting, hey, oh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited about this film. Uh, I I'm excited that maybe it'll be repeating some of the themes that the original films had. But then this morning, I kind of realized, no, it's 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 different i think they're going in a different direction i i appreciated the story that they told a little bit more this morning after seeing it the second time so so we'll see where this goes
0: yeah and i, th- I have to ask this too when did you figure out that liam neeson was the villain of the movie shoot i forget when i
1: i think i found out i i want to say it was pr- relatively early when did when did you think it was maybe I, that'll jog my memory
0: i figured it out pretty early on because there was that street fight that h and m have with the hive or the dyads in the in the street there and the whole legendary status of h was built up as having helped to defeat the hive right that's correct yes and the whole time he's just shooting them and shooting them and thinking like nothing's working like haven't you done this already that's right that's right
1: yeah because we we at that point i think we do think they are hive or maybe uh we're suspicious that they're the hive and supposedly if if you've seen the movie chris hemsworth's character along with liam neeson defeated the hive and spoilers if
0: you haven't seen the film um, at the end they did not (laughs) yeah chris hemsworth was neuralized by Liam Neeson because turns out Liam Neeson's the Hive and wants to make him believe that he defeated the Hive. Right, right. What does
1: uh, Agent H, Chris Hemsworth character, keep saying? He's They defeated the Hive, nothing
0: uh, but with their wits and... They're Series 7 de-atomizers. Yeah, there, you go. there you go. And this movie did kind of, in a way, retroactively rewrote the history of the Men in Black because the Eiffel Tower was apparently designed as a wormhole portal, and yet that totally just eliminates everything that Tommy Lee Jones said in the first one where they made first contact and... 1960 whatever and then the organization was created after that
1: I noticed that too and I actually did not get a chance to uh kind of look up dates and details about that but yeah you're right because in the very first film Tommy Lee Jones uh Agent K says that they were the ones that started the Men in Black a group of five of them or whatever he says and now we get a story of in the Eiffel Tower there's a wormhole and and there was an alien migration and that that was before, obviously. Agent K in the what was it 1960s or
0: something something like that I know Tommy Lee Jones looked pretty young in those photos so right. it must have been a long time ago before he got all crusty
1: yeah I wonder why they uh, I wonder why they kind of ignored that they could technically fix it, but it was confusing. There were a lot of confusing parts in this film. So maybe this
0: new series of films is meant to be a sequel series. And one of the rules with a sequel is you have to try and expand the universe that the world is set in. That's
1: true. That's true. And and we'll we'll kind of get to possible sequels at the at the end here, unless you want to go into that now.
0: Well, let's first discuss how this movie is doing right now in terms oh, of reviews and the box office. Right, right. So yeah, I go think, ahead. So I think it's important to mention that this movie is not doing so well on the critics' side of things. Uh, when I checked earlier, um, it currently holds a 24% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, which is, I saw that. Which is plain old rotten. It's got that little green blob right next to it. It's like don't
1: don't don't see it. Whatever that icon is. Yeah,
0: and this bothered me too. Michael Phillips actually called MIB International an improvement over Men in Black 2 and 3, which is categorically
1: false. Definitely not the third one. The third one I love. And actually, sometimes I make an argument that the third one may be even be better than the first one. But I digress on that. Maybe one day we'll we'll get to those other two and uh, review those.
0: I don't think there's been enough time in between the third film and now to put it above the original because the original really set the tone for the series. And like we mentioned in our episode last week, the, the first one has really become this sort of this classic this dark horse classic in the sci-fi genre. And it it has rightfully earned that place. Maybe in another 10 years' time, we'll view MIB 3 the same way we view MIB one but i i personally agree with you i think mib3 is the best in the series
1: yeah it's it's definitely up there um so we were talking about an original sequel to men in black 3 off air and you have a little bit more information on that than i do so what was up with that there was there was originally going to be a sequel to men in black 3 then
0: Yes, uh, Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones were on board after MIB Three came out in 2012, and there was it was in early development in 2013, and there was a script at Sony, and that was it after that. Do you know what happened? Nothing. I don't. I couldn't find anything hmm. about what exactly happened. That is, as far as I can tell, in 2014, there was just you know, mum's the word was about it.
1: Hmm, interesting. interesting. The only
0: thing that I did see was that there was a potential crossover that was planned between the Jump Street franchise and men in black now that i did read about and i would be weary about doing that well you don't have to worry about it anymore because they actually canceled that project in january of this year well that's good with all that said i mean what do you think could we get a sequel for men in black international so i think it depends on how well
1: this does at the box office um so the budget i think was
0: 110 million that was a high estimate that i saw so a good rule of thumb when you're trying to... Um Imagine how much money a movie will have to make to make uh, to be profitable. Is you just take its initial budget and multiply it by two. Right. So this movie's going to have to gross quite a bit of money to make up that initial investment. So
1: actually, I was reading today that early estimates from the early weekend release that they weren't actually going to make their projected earnings of around a hundred million. But it looks like I, I checked this morning, and it looks like they're back on track now, essentially. Um, they need to make about 30 million in the and Canada-, Canada and US territories and then
0: 70 million overseas
1: which is about where they're at
0: well it helps that the movie was shot all over the world like in Morocco and Italy so i think that will help in the international audience that's true that's true but i think what would help if a sequel were greenlit is you get a different team of writers in the room and maybe it might even help to bring barry sonnenfeld back as the director absolutely i i would actually completely agree with that i think that would help
1: get the action sequences down the number of action sequences concentrate more on the characters um do you think that they're sort of building up some type of universe with with these characters
0: i mean by definition of mib international they are and everything is a universe now there's so many franchises now that are universes i mean obviously there's a marvel universe There dc's been attempting to do a universe there's the king kong godzilla monster universe Universal's trying to bring back their they call it their dark universe with all their their horror classics yes with uh, tom cruise as uh as the person in the mummy yeah well i think that got canceled after that Um, but this is all, I think this is already a universe though. It doesn't need, you know, an MIB Mars or something, you know? Oh no,
1: no, no, I'm not, I'm not talking about, uh, off world. I'm talking about different branches. So we've got at the end of the movie, we, we have agent M going back to New York and we have agent H Chris Hemsworth becoming the probationary leader of the London, uh, sector of, of MIB essentially. So, I don't know if a sequel would actually involve um, Agent M and Agent H, but maybe uh, they're they're setting up a potential universe where Agent M has a new recruit and they go off on their missions and then Agent H has a different adventure and then potentially you know they combine those characters again for a
0: combined universal film we'll see i think it'll be a little while before any type of sequel gets greenlit for this and
1: absolutely i'm, I'm just i'm hypothesizing I, we were debating on whether or not
0: if this is really going to make up its budget
1: and if it doesn't obviously there won't be a sequel
0: and it, it takes so much work to actually make a movie so who knows what will happen once it's theatrical run is, is concluded and the actors move on to other things. So who knows what could happen? Right. Absolutely. So I think we've unpacked enough of MIB International today. Let's rate the film. All right. So anytime we are covering a fresh release like this, we forego our last portion of our rating system of would host a viewing party. So we have a would see again in the theaters. So Jeremy, what do you rate... MIB International.
1: So uh, for this one, I would I would say would watch, but but when this comes out on you know Blu-ray and digital, I wouldn't be opposed uh, to buying this once the prices have gone down because you know when it's it's released at first it's like mm-hmm. 25 30 or something a digital copy maybe costs 20 bucks but after like a year or so it usually goes down to like 12 dollars or something like that that's when i think i would buy it I, I would not go back and see this
0: in the theaters again, um, even though I did.
1: <laughs> but I only did that for the uh, preparation of this episode.
0: You know, I think we're gonna have to differ a little bit on this. I would have to call this a wood watch. So if, I, if and I put a caveat in this like you did, if I was doing if I were doing a marathon of the previous men in black films, and this was up in the list, and MIB International was at Redbox. I would go check it out and continue the marathon. There you go. There you go. I I don't blame you though. I don't blame you. This is by no means the worst sequel I have oh, ever seen.
1: Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But I think there were a lot of things that they could have done to make it a better film.
0: Well and will I remain hopeful of if there is a sequel, Greenland, that I think um sony and the filmmakers recognize that there was a problem with this one and they do their best to remedy uh, future films in this franchise
1: yeah i i think they will if it does get to that point i think they'll at least attempt it but who knows that second attempt may fail as well
0: i hope not so i think that about wraps it up on this bite-sized edition of the force-fed sci-fi podcast so If you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes and leave us a five star or an honest review. It helps drive us up the charts as well as help people like you find the show. We are across the spectrum of social media with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram all at ForceFed Sci-Fi. You can check out and download episodes at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and we are now on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you find podcasts, and please subscribe so you never miss an episode. And finally, you can check out our website, ForceFedSciFi.com, for show notes and links of all of our social media. So for all of us here at the ForceFed Sci-Fi team, we'll see you next time. Force-Fed Sci-Fi is written and hosted by Sean Culp and Chris Rupp. Website design, associate producer, and editing by Jeremy Kesky. Artwork designed by Mike Berger. Theme music composed and performed by Custom Anthem.